You're listening to the audio from Tuesday Night Class at CA Church, located in Coquitlam, British Columbia. We hope this teaching helps you grow in your personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And as a bishop, uh, we read in antiquity that this bishop was led into a stadium. And in the stadium, we know that death and gore were considered entertainment in this stadium. Big crowd gathered, and the crowd was hoping that what they were going to witness would somehow distract them, somehow drown the, um, the sorrows of day-to-day living. They'd hoped to drown their own fear of their own mortality in someone else's blood. Now, three days earlier, this bishop had, had a dream. This bishop, his name is Polycarp. He had a dream, and he dreamt that his pillow was on fire. And he knew that it meant that soon he was going to face the flames. Now he enters the arena in chains, and he's surrounded by those who hated the faith that he stood for. And yet he heard the voice of God encouraging him, telling him to be strong and courageous. And when the crowd saw him and recognized him as the leader of the Christians in their city, they cheered to see that he had been arrested. Polycarp stands before the Roman proconsul, the man whom the emperor had sent to be the governor of the province. And when asked, Polycarp confirmed that he indeed was a bishop of the city of a place called Smyrna. And to admit this was an admission of guilt. Because to be a Christian in this age was to be seen as antisocial, was to be seen as a hater of humanity. And surprisingly, it was seen, you were seen to be an atheist. Sounds strange. But this person, according to the, um, the authorities, was worthy of death. But they try to convince Polycarp to deny his faith, to save his life. And, and the proconsul says to him, Polycarp, you're an old man. You're an old man. All you have to do is take an oath to the emperor, renounce your fellow traitors, and we'll set you free. Now, Christians worship only one God. They don't worship many gods. And um, so (laughs) non-Christians... called, again, they called Christians atheists because they didn't worship the official gods of the Roman Empire. And the proconsul promised Polycarp, hey, I'll set you you free if only you deny your faith. If, If, Polycarp, if only you say, away with the atheists, meaning away with Christians, then I'll let you go free. Polycarp turns towards the crowd and he looks at them and he says, Away with the atheists. And they're probably like, that's not what I meant. Not what I meant. And then so he changes tack. And he says, I want you to swear an oath, and I will release you. I want you to curse Christ. And Polycarp, in these immortal words that uh, maybe you've heard before, he calmly replied, I have been his servant for 86 years. And he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king who saved me? 
If you think that I will do as you request and swear an oath to Caesar, pretending not to know who I am, then listen very carefully to what I'm about to say. I am a Christian. Now, if you want to learn the teachings of Christianity, set aside a day and I'll tell you all about them. I mean, you got it. These guys got moxie, right? <laughs> the proconsul gets mad. He says, you know what? I'm going to release some wild animals. They're going to tear you apart. How, how, how do you, what do you think of that? And the bishop says, all right, go ahead and call for them. I'm not afraid. And then the proconsul says, well, if you're not afraid of wild beasts, I'll have you burned with fire. Unless you change your mind. And Polycarp replied, you threaten me with a fire that burns only for a little while, and then it's put out. But you know nothing of the eternal fire, the eternal punishment that awaits the ungodly at the coming judgment. Why do you hesitate? And Polycarp said, do what you want to do. And sure enough, they burn him. And the crowd is cheering. The crowd is enjoying watching this bishop of Smyrna being burned to death. Now, here's a question I want to ask you. There's a few questions I want to ask you. What kind of culture would cheer on a gruesome death of an old man? What kind of world takes delight in the burning of an elderly person whose only crime is to be a bishop of a group of people called Christians? Those are important questions. But here's a more important question. When you hear that story, when I describe that story, how do you feel? Angry, disgusted, horrified. So what has is, what is changed in our world where when we hear this story, we actually feel disgusted and horrified? What, what has changed in our world so that when we hear this story, we say, hey, what happened to this guy? Wasn't right. This, this is quite unjust. Let me ask you one more, and this next question is an awkward question. Are we slipping back in the West into a culture that would also enjoy to see such a thing happen? That's a big question. We'll come back to this. The truth is that many of the changes our world has gone through, these changes are for the better. But what has happened? Well, I think what has happened is an event that took place 2,000 years ago, surrounded a person named Jesus Christ, and the event is his life, death, and resurrection. And so that's what we're going to be looking at in this class. This class is called How Christianity Saves Civilization and Can Do So Again. Sounds like a great title. I just took it from a book that I'm reading because, again, books are not copyrightable. You know that? Titles? I could write a book called War and Peace and it'd be totally fine. Um, and it seems like ages since we did our class on the Beatitudes. So I'm excited about the material that we're going to be going through this fall. I'm also quite excited that... Um, uh, Dr. Proven spoke last week because in many ways his talk set up what we're going to be looking at in these weeks ahead. Now I 
if you've been around in any of my class, you'll know, I hope you know this, I am not a creative thinker at all. I'm not a creative person. Um, but I'm good at finding food and then telling you about this food and pointing you where you can get some food. So I'm like a, a fellow sojourner or a person who's just, hey, I came across this really book, a really good book. Let me tell you about it. And so in this class, what this is what I'm doing. I'm actually drawing from a number of books that I've read on this particular topic. One of the books is this title, How Christianity Saves Civilization. I really like that one. Another book is called The Air We Breathe. And there's a few other books. There's a, a book by um, Tom Holland when he's not playing Spider-Man. He wrote this book called uh, uh, Dominion. Okay, maybe it's a different Tom Holland. There's a really interesting book called um, um, The Rise of the Individual. Oh, no, Inventing the Individual by a guy named Larry Seidentop. Um, and there's a book uh, by an, an East India writer uh, called the, uh, the Book That Made Your World. Uh, and also another really interesting book I'm reading. It's called From, From Shame to Sin, and it's looking at sexuality in antiquity. Man, it's an interesting book. Anyhow, so these are the books I'm reading, and I'm just going to turn around over these next 10 weeks and tell you what I'm, uh, what I'm learning. That's basically what this class is all about. That's basically what all my classes are about. And so one of the themes, the key theme in this class is this. To understand our world, you need to look at the life and the influence of Jesus Christ. Our culture, especially Western culture, but not just Western culture, but Western culture in particular, has been deeply and profoundly shaped by the Christ event in ways that we don't even realize. So many, so many things that we take for granted in our culture, such as freedom, compassion, humility, human rights, science, progress, tolerance, equality. These, these, these ideas do not exist in a vacuum but are actually the legacy of Jesus Christ and his life, death, and resurrection. And have been passed on to us through God's word. And so one of the passages I'd like to read to, uh, for us tonight, just to frame our, our time, is, is found in 1 Corinthians. I'll just read it to you. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Paul, he writes these words. He says, now... Uh, um, he says, I would remind you, brothers and sisters, of the gospel that I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, as of first importance, also what I received, that Christ died for our sins, in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scripture, and that he appeared to Peter, then he appeared to the twelve, and he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he also appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Let's pray. Jesus, this uh, class is about you. Uh, we want to honor you, not just uh, with our minds, but with our hearts. And so we pray over these next few weeks that this would be an act of worship.
that we would worship you with our hearts and our minds, and that what we learn would not just be interesting information that we put back on the shelf after the 10 weeks, but it would be transformative. And it would shape how we live out the life that you've called us to live, how we speak to our neighbors, and what we say to our neighbors. So guide us, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so now you've heard this before. I know Pastor Sam mentioned it. You, you know the story, right? You guys know the story of the two fish in the tank, right? One fish says to the other fish, do you know how to drive this thing? Come on, that's a funny one, isn't it? <laughs> no. <laughs> Sorry, I was chuckling when I wrote that. I thought it was kind of a funny joke, but it wasn't. <laughs> Two fish in the tank saying, how's the water? And the other one says, what's water? I like the first one about that. Do you know how to drive this thing? But <laughs> How's the water? What's water? Again, the point is crucial to make. Um, if you're a Westerner, and even if you're not from the West, uh, even if you've never stepped in a church before, and you've had very little to do with Christianity, like me, my, girl, my, my background, the water in which you swim, the reality in which you live, the air that you breathe has been deeply shaped by Christianity. Now, I, again, I didn't grow up in the church. Many of you guys know that. I didn't grow up at all. I knew nothing about the Bible. I, I, we never went to church. And, but I, my life was shaped by, by many of the truths in the Bible. We'd go to high school. We'd say the Lord's Prayer at the beginning of the day. I'm like, this is dumb. Why are we doing this? But we'd have Bible stories. Sunday shopping wasn't a thing when I was growing up. Why is that? You know, it's, our, our culture was profoundly affected by Christianity, but even, even more so now. How we understand what day it is, what year it is, um, many of our expressions, how we see the economy, political assumptions. Oh, thanks, man. Um, morality, everything. is Christianity is the air we breathe, even today. And so part of our class is to pay attention to breathing. So let's, let's give it a shot. Everybody breathe in. Breathe out, including my cyber friends. Breathe in. Breathe out. The fact is, very few of us pay attention to our breathing. When I'm biking to work up that hill, I do pay attention a little bit more to my breathing. Um, but we know that if we suddenly stop breathing, that's a problem, right? That is a problem. Well, this is what this class is about, is paying attention to our breathing. Instead of focusing on oxygen, we're going to be focusing on the many realities of the world that we take for granted. And then we're going to look at how Christian they really are. Now, why am I teaching you this class? Well, one, it's super interesting. And that should be enough. But there's other reasons. Um, I hope this encourages you in your Christian walk. Uh, how many of you guys were at the... Um, men's retreat this year. Some of you guys were at the men's retreat. I see a couple hands. Yeah. So we had a guy named Rick Watts. He's a New Testament guy from Regent College. And Rick began his talk. Do you remember what he said? He says, he goes, the fact, he's Australian, good eye, the fact that you have a phone, oh no, it's not a good Australian accent, because the fact you have a phone, an iPhone, tells you that Jesus has won. And we're all sitting there going, What? You see, in fact, you have an iPhone, it, Jesus is one. 
And we're like, what are you talking about? And then he started to unpack it. And we'll, we are going to unpack this. Christianity has had a huge impact on our world today. And that's what we're going to be exploring. Now, along the way, I'm going to give you opportunity, brief opportunities, to talk about a question that I'm going to bring up. Right? Because it's nice. It'd be really sad if after 10 weeks, you'd be like, well, that was a great class. What was your name? You know, you're sitting at a table. You know, just get to know each other. Don't spend too much time. But try to answer this question. And, and you guys online, okay, um, next week I'll get you so you can talk to each other. But for now, you're just going to talk to me answering the question. When I say to you that the world that we live in is deeply Christian, how does that sit with you? And what feelings or questions come to the surface? So around your tables, I want you to discuss just for a moment. How does this statement sit with you? And what feelings or emotions or thoughts or questions come to mind? Okay, you guys can put it on the chat. And you guys can just talk around your, your table for a second. If you're an introvert, and you're like, I hate this. That's okay. You don't have to participate. But just kind of nod your head. Okay, go just for a couple of minutes. All right. All right, so, Jonathan, do I need to mute? If, if I, I mute myself or unmute, it makes no difference, does it? Keep myself muted, muted. okay. Ha, 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 ha. All right. Somebody's already complained that I've been doing too many dad jokes, so it's not good. Okay, so how does that sit with you? Just very quickly. Hey, this country that we live in this culture we live in is more christian than it's ever been how does that sit with you <laughs> yeah you guys have been reading the notes on here they're like no way yeah well that's what I, I i i anticipated this i i have it in your note i have it in my notes Ah, i can hear some of you politely or not so politely thinking to yourself i don't buy it you're probably thinking hey our world is anything but christian Look what's happening in our schools. Look what's happening in the government. <laughs> we live in a post-Christian, post-truth, post-serial world. And how can you say this culture is Christian? Sounds to me like Pastor David has been taking advantage of Canada's marijuana laws. Yes. <laughs> now, some of you may be thinking, well, hang on, hang on. What this kind of talk about Canada being Christian and Christian, that's kind of a that's kind of dangerous talk. It sounds awfully triumphalistic, um, sounds quite nationalistic. Um, don't you realize, David, the harm that Christianity has done to this world? Think about the impact of colonialism and, and all sorts of things. And some of you might even be thinking, well, I'm, I'm kind of glad that Christianity has been pushed to the back of the line in Canada, because Christianity has been, you know, a picture of inequality, uh, coercion, ignorance. It's, it's anti-science. It's restrictive. It, it's, it's backwards. That could be where some of you are coming from. Nevertheless, the thesis of this class is something I'm going to come back to again and again. I'm drawing this from our man, Glenn Scrivener. I like the way he puts it. The extraordinary impact of Christianity 
is seen in the fact that you don't notice it. You may not realize it. Even if you're not a Christian, you already hold Christian-ish views. Even if you're not a Christian, you have Christian views. And the fact that you think these, these views, these values are natural, obvious, or universal just shows you how profoundly this Christian revolution has affected you. Yeah, that's my, this is the big picture of the class. We're going to come back to this again and again. Um, I will argue that most, most people embrace ideas like compassion, uh, the importance of family, the necessity of consent, the importance of science, the, the, the need for tolerance, freedom, and progress. Most people would hold that these things are, are, are important values. But the question I want to ask is, are these self-evident? Contrary to the Declaration of Independence, they may not be self-evident. But how do they become the air we breathe? Well, this is what we're going to look at in this class. And so I hope you lean in in this class. Um, I, want, uh, I want to invite, it doesn't matter what your background is. Some of you are, are listening, you're online, or you're here tonight, and you're not coming from a Christian perspective, but you're just kind of intrigued or whatever. Um, I hope that uh, you lean in and you ask great questions. Feel free to ask really good questions during the week as you're processing this. Hey, Last week I gave out my cell number. I mean, give me a call. You should still have my cell number. If not, just text me or whatever or email me. And so I want to encourage you, if you disagree with me, push back. Now, I hate to be geeky, but just the freedom that you have to push back against my idea is actually a Christian legacy. So, sorry. <laughs> okay, so here we go. Here we go. I'm going to begin by uh, talking about the day before the revolution started, because one of the themes of this class is about revolution, the revolution that, uh, that Christianity brought about. How many of you have been to an art gallery? That's not bad. It's impressive, actually. Uh, pretty high-level group I got here, yeah. Now, I've been to art galleries whenever they're free. So London, they're all free. Uh, I think Washington, they're free. So, um, And one of the things I've noticed is that when you go into an art gallery, if you're looking at art that's like pre-1800, there's like one theme, and it's usually the theme of Jesus on the cross. Sometimes nativity, but often they're pictures of the cross. After 1800, the, the art takes a different, then you get lots of stripes. And uh, <laughs> my brother and I were uh, in Ottawa once, and we went to the art gallery. We had nothing to do. We went into the art gallery, and uh, we're kind of looking around, and we went into this one room, and I was like, oh, shoot, we can't go in here. It's under construction. But we didn't realize the construction. It was just a line of bricks on the floor that that was the art, and we, we kind of missed that. <laughs> but Jesus Christ and his death on the cross has been a central image throughout most of Western history. Uh, the cross is one of the most recognizable symbols in, in, in human history. Uh, we see it on ambulances, in hospitals, on gravestones, as tattoos, necklaces, earrings. You see crosses throughout churches. Um, I think it's the most recognizable symbol in Western history, in the Western world. Now, we talked about this a little bit last year, but <laughs> the idea that, that the cross, we see crosses everywhere, 
in gold and silver and all sorts of you know diamonds and it, it's it's rather striking and it's also quite striking that one of the main themes in art is a depiction of a death a famous person's death and you add to the mix that this person who died this death and, and as we'll discover is quite a horrible death that this person was somehow, someway, God, it's quite a revolutionary thing for a person to say. And if it's true, well, the implications are world-transforming. There are many people in the Greco-Roman world, even as there are today, who thought the idea that God was somehow on the cross is absolutely ludicrous. Absolutely crazy. It was a peak of foolishness. It, 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 in fact, in the Greco-Roman world, if you want to come across a picture of a cross, I know of one picture. It's a very famous picture, but it's not art. It's actually graffiti that's found on some wall in the Greco-Roman world in around 200 AD. It's an actual piece of graffiti that you come across. I have it in your notes. And it's a picture of, and it looks like some you know, grade 11 <laughs> kid scribbling on the side of a wall. And what does he do? He draws this picture of a donkey, of an ass on a cross and somebody underneath. And in, in rough writing, it says, Alexemenos worships his God. And so in the Greco-Roman world, this idea that somehow somebody important, somebody, even God, could die such a death is, is, is asinine. Is completely asinine. And the artist's point is that this guy on the cross is not God, and he's an ass, and anyone who worships him is an ass. And so one of the questions we're faced with is you have these two pictures. You got this picture in art of the cross, the history of art, and then you have this piece of graffiti. And the question is which one, which person is right? And so what I want to do, just to set the table a little bit, is I want to look at the person in the event of Jesus Christ living and how his death would have been seen in the ancient world, because this is really important. And what were his implications? Well, let's look at the days before the revolution started, the days before the Jesus event. How was crucifixion understood in the Greco-Roman world? Well, let's hear what Cicero has to say. He's one of the great philosophers of the day. What does he say about crucifixion? He says, Wretched is the loss of one's good name in the public courts. Wretched, too, a monetary fine exacted from one's property. And wretched is exile. So these are really bad things. You know, to get your name dragged in, in, in court, uh, to, to lose a lot of money, to lose your property. It's really terrible to be thrown into exile. But... The executioner, the veiling of heads, and the very word cross, let them be removed not only from the bodies of the Roman citizens, but even from their thoughts, their eyes, and their ears. The mere mention of them is unworthy of a Roman citizen and a free man. So to Cicero, the, even, even mentioning the cross is something that you never do. It, it, because to me, even mention the cross was to bring up the biggest picture of shame a person could imagine. 
To experience shame would tarnish one's good name. And it would affect everyone. So in, in Roman, actually, it's one of the things we're going to get to, in Roman culture, shame is a big deal. And not to get too far ahead of myself, but I think in our culture, we're seeing a shift away from guilt to shame. Shame is a big deal in our culture today. Yeah, I don't want to go down that road too quickly. Stop me if I start going, because I do that every now and then. I start just going down too many roads. Okay. In the, Roman, in the Roman world, there's no greater shame. There's no greater shame than to be crucified on a Roman cross. It, it could not get worse than that. It is, it is the lowest of the lowest. To die via crucifixion was so bad that you don't even talk about it. It wasn't conversation that you could ever have with anyone. Crucifixion was literally excruciating, which means from the cross. But it, and, and it was extremely painful, yes, but it was utterly shameful. And shame mattered a lot in the Roman world. And for us to see the cross as a sacred symbol conveying deep meaning is actually the opposite of its meaning in the Roman world. To Christians, what does the cross represent? Hope, new life, forgiveness, salvation, freedom, God's presence, transformation, peace. <laughs> Those are the last things that would have represented in the ancient world. In the ancient world, the cross symbolized shame, degradation, worthlessness, despair, torture, and loss. Because you think about it, on, on, on the cross, a Roman historian, one of the Roman historians, a guy named Tacitus, he observed that corpses that were, you know, people who had died on the cross, were cut down from the cross, were regularly thrown into a ditch to be pecked at by birds and eaten by dogs. This is what happens to bodies who died on the cross. And the, 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 the implications or the, the, the meaning was clear. It meant that those who died this kind of death were, were, were garbage. They were rubbish. They were just stuff that you throw out. And, and it explains who could be crucified because the average, like the Roman citizen could not be crucified. Most of the people who would be crucified were slaves. Slaves in the Roman Empire, if you've, if you've taken my class before, you know if this was indicative of the Roman Empire, these three tables, maybe four tables, you guys would make, you'd make up slaves in the Roman Empire. The rest of you wouldn't. But that's a high percentage of slaves, about 35%. And slaves in the Roman Empire were viewed, as, as many of you know, they were not human. Slaves weren't human. They were what Aristotle called living tools. They were tools. And they were to carry out the work of the rich. And so slaves could be punished in ways that citizens could not. And slaves were punished by means of uh, crucifixion. Cicero writes that crucifixion was the most miserable and most painful punishment appropriate to slaves alone. And in fact, one of the worst things that could happen is a Roman citizen being mistaken as not being a Roman citizen and being mistakenly crucified. Cicero, again, he writes, it's a crime to bind a Roman citizen, to scourge him is a wickedness, to put him to death is almost parasite, like killing a parent. 
What shall I say of crucifying him? So guilty an action cannot by any possibility be adequately expressed by any name bad enough. Or he goes, it, if somebody was accidentally crucified, I don't even have words to describe how bad that is. That's what Cicero is saying. And we know that back in AD 61, there was a, a, a situation where you had a slave kill a Roman senator. And the consequence of that is that everyone in the Roman senator's household 400 slaves were all crucified as a punishment. And that actually went to court. They're like, well, this is, this is like a little over the top. Everybody's going to be crucified? And they're like, no, for the sake of stability, for the sake of tradition, for the betterment of society and the safety of society, they all need to be killed. And they all need to be crucified. And so what crucifixion communicated was that these people being killed were worthless. We have to think about that. Someone killed on a cross was seen as being worthless. They were less than human. They were being rendered into non-human, lower than the lowest. It's like, like, and I hate to be crude, but it's like to, to, to die on, on the cross is, 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 it was like squishing a bug. That's, that's how it was seen. And to see somebody on a cross, you, it was to witness what uh, Scribner says, is the unpersoning of somebody. And the meaning was clear. Do not go this way of the wretch. Now, why am I telling you about just how terrible crucifixion is? Well, because in the Roman world, this was the air they breathed. This was normal. It, it, it's just, this is part of life. Now, it was so much part of life that crucifixion was actually the act of crucifixion. Yeah, you don't talk about it, but it's something that, it was a spectacle that you may want to take in as entertainment still. And we know that, uh, you know, long before, you know, groups like, you know, U2 and, Bruce Springsteen did halftime shows at the NFL, you know, Super Bowls. Uh, halftime show in the Gladiator game, in the Gladiator games were crucifixions. That was a halftime show. Or, not only crucifixions, what else do you have? You had gladiator fights. You had death. And rape through wild animals, being let loose on prisoners. I'll tell you, I was reading some of the stuff this week. It's dark stuff. It is dark. It makes your stomach turn. Crucifixions, again, they were part of the halftime show. And what was being communicated, and this is part of the air that you breathed, is the worthlessness of certain lives. We know that under the emperor Caligula, we know there was a time in the Roman Empire where there was a shortage of meat. And so what, is emperor, what did the emperor do? He released, <laughs> well, he didn't release. He took all the prisoners, those who hadn't even stood trial, and he just fed them to the animals so that the animals who are used in the show wouldn't die. So certain people were seen and treated as pet food. And so where, where are we so far? Crucifixion was the lowest way 
to execute someone from the lowest rung in the Greco-Roman society. Crucifixion was a part of the way the Roman society viewed and treated certain segments of society, particular slaves. Now, let me just ask you this. Let me just, because I've been going for a little bit. How is this sitting with you? How does this make you, what are some emotions or thoughts or feelings that come to mind? It seems unbelievable, doesn't it? It's so dark. What else? Let's see what you guys are saying. Yeah. Yeah, good. So Keenan was saying that, um, you know, the fact, when you look at just how, how low this is, and, that, and that's what, you know, Keenan, that, that struck me when I was preparing this, is because we talk about the cross, the cross, the cross, the cross, you know, there's, there's, you know, glory in the cross, when I survey the wonders, cross and cross, cross, cross. And when you realize what the cross, and how gross it is, and how worthless, and, 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 and the unpersoning of this kind of death, and the way it was used as halftime shows, and just, and then you think that God in Christ willingly went to the cross. Then it starts getting your head around, what, what kind of God is this? Who is this God? That's what really struck me. Now, I want to I just move from here just a little bit. Um, glad we don't live there. We didn't live there. <laughs> yeah. Why did the ancient world treat human beings this way? That's a big question. It's, it's an important question. Why did they think that this is okay to treat people this way? You know, what kind of society has as its halftime show the crucifixion of human beings? Could be pride and arrogance, yeah. But it's also a way they, they say they saw the world, right? Well, how would people enjoy, again, it's, it's nauseating stuff, but we know that the Romans viewed human beings differently than we in the West today, in 2023, would view human beings. <laughs> For starters, in the Roman society, not everybody's equal. And in fact, inequality was natural. What does Plato, our man Plato, say? Plato says, nature herself... in uh, intimates that it is just for the better to have more than the worse, <laughs> the more powerful than the weaker. Justice consists of the superior ruling over and having more than the inferior. So Plato, it's just natural. This is the way it is. You know, the smarter rule over the dumber, right? You know, the more powerful rule over the less powerful. This is, this is justice. This is the way things are. Aristotle, his student, says, for that some should rule and others be ruled is a thing not only necessary, but expedient. From the hour of their birth, some are marked out for subjection and others for rule. That's what Aristotle he says. Some people, just, just from the very beginning, some are born to rule and some are born to be ruled. That's just the way it is. So, let me ask you a question. 
Actually, you can just talk about your, how does that picture of inequality sit with you? They said, this is very nice. This is just the way the world is. Talk among yourselves. How does that sit with you? Just for a second. <laughs> you know, some, some are born to rule. Some are born to be ruled. Says, so this is just the way things are. How does that sit with you? What's that? It's great if you're the ruler. Yeah. Does that seem fair? Does that seem okay? No? Yeah, we say, yeah, it's still happening in our culture. Yeah. Why are we covert about it, though? That's right, to admit it would be shameful, because it shouldn't be this way. Yeah, that's, that's, and that's the point. Um, usually when we hear that, you know, guys like Plato and Aristotle, yeah, some are born to rule, some are born not to rule. Um, you know, of course, the men should be on top, the men... Men are, well, not just any man. You know, come on, let's, let's be clear. Um, the philosophers are at the top. Yeah. Next comes, well, if you're good at fighting, if you know karate and stuff. Like, okay, you can be on, like, number two, you're, you're military. I suppose the businessmen should be up there, too. And then, well, I guess, I guess there's women. Yeah, well, we all know what women are. Women are poorly formed men. Oh, I'm just quoting Aristotle. You go after him, yeah. You know, because women, because women are soft, right? They're soft. And so they haven't, it's like they haven't, they haven't hardened to be men yet. And so they're like, um, how, did, how did great old Aristotle put it? He goes, they are deformed males. <laughs> There's going to be a riot here. I don't know if you guys are right now. <laughs> that's why, that's why, okay, and then, and then, okay, but they're still human beings. See? Aristotle would say, I'm a reasonable person. They're still human beings. And then you have slaves and barbarians. Well, barbarians and then slaves Barbarians are foreigners, so they're, yeah, they're weird. And then slaves, well, obviously aren't human. They're just things, right? That's how society worked. Now, you have this famous line by Socrates. What's his famous line? It's probably the only line I know. No. Know thyself. And you often hear that quoted. Socrates says, know thyself. And you know what that means? It means just look deep inside yourself and know who you are. That's not what he means. What does he mean? Know your place and stay there. Know your place and stay there. In fact, this is, this is woven deep, deep into, into um, it's, it's, it's woven deep into culture because have you guys, do you remember ever reading Aesop's Fables? Has anybody ever read Aesop's Fables? Put up your hand. Yeah, it's funny. You don't read it as much anymore. Aesop's fables. Now, when did Aesop live? When are these fables from? Actually, from quite a long time. But I think the seventh uh, century BC, roughly the seventh century BC. And Aesop tells a story of a lizard. 
And this lizard doesn't want to be a lizard. Wants to be a, a snake. And so what does the lizard do? Well, he stretches himself, stretches himself to become a snake and stretches, and then he, he explodes. What's the moral of the story? Know thyself. Don't try to be someone you're not. Don't be thinking you can move around. This is what's going. This is the air you breathe. If, if you try to disrupt the status quo, it doesn't end well for you. And if you really try to disrupt the status quo and you're of a particular group of people, your future is crucifixion. And this inequality is woven into the fabric of society. It was the air that they breathed. Now, some of you might be, well, wait a minute, weren't the Greeks also a little bit about democracy? It's not all bad, you know, the Greeks and democracy. I think I studied that in first-year political science or something like that. Well, democracy, which means power of the people, does emerge in ancient Greece, but you have to ask the question, who constituted the people? Well, it doesn't mean the people standing equally under law. What it meant was uh, usually the paterfamilias who is the head of the family, and a bunch of them getting together. In the ancient world, it's not the individual. In fact, oh, I don't want to get ahead of myself, but the, the idea of the individual. Right? You are Ray Keelan. That's who you are. These individuals, right? Al Horvath, that's who you are. This idea of the individual is actually a concept that emerges later. And it's connected to a certain revolution that took place 2,000 years ago. Oh, well, I'm getting ahead of myself, but I just thought it was kind of cool. Um, in the Greek world, the head of the family, the father, would come together with other fathers. They would vote on things, but they wouldn't vote on anything really important because really important things in society were decided not by democracy, but they were decided by divination. You go to the gods, you go to the temple, and you consult the gods to get up, to, to get, to make decisions. And so Greco-Roman society was not made up of individuals who constituted society. Not at all. It was, it was the head of the family. And the role of the head of the family, the father, was to hold power over his family. And we're going to do a week on the family, which is super interesting. But he had absolute power over his family. Yeah, I don't want to get ahead of myself because these are cool stories, but I don't want to. But and he was like the, the, the priest of the family. And his, his, his job was to, um, to um, literally keep the home fires burning and, and to have proper veneration to the ancestors. And many of you from East Asian background, you get this. You understand this because it's still part and parcel of East Asian uh, culture. And so in, in the Greco-Roman world, what mattered most is not this idea of democracy, but it was divination, the civic gods that dominated Roman life. Uh, Greco-Roman society was thoroughly religious. It was incredibly religious. And religion has nothing to do with good and bad. You realize that in the Greco-Roman world? Religion is all about power. The realm of good and bad and ethics, what realm is that? Does anybody know? Very, you know. Philosophy. It's the realm of philosophy. Anyhow, 
you're probably wondering, why am I spending so much time on the ancient world? Well, it's fun. No, it's interesting. <clears throat> but here's a connecting point. How we see the world today is not a given. Because we know at different times in history, people see reality differently. So that, that's the point. Now, and, and one of the things you need to realize is that how you see society, in particular, how you see human beings is directly connected to how you see the divine. How you see the transcendent world actually affects how you see people. I'm going to show you. I'm going to show you how this works in the Greco-Roman world. There's a deep connection. We need to get this. Because this is going to play out in our, in, in our conversation. There's a deep connection between, to put it technically, theology, which is talk about who God is, and anthropology, which is what? Study of humanity, yeah. So there's a connection between how we see divine and how we see humanity. How we see God or how we don't see God affects how we see ourselves as human beings. So for example... If you believe that God does not exist, God doesn't exist. The spiritual world is non-existent. How does that affect how you see a human being? Think about that. I'm going to let that sit with you. If God doesn't exist, spiritual world doesn't exist how does that reality or non-reality shape how you see human beings could be yeah you, you look for naturalistic explanations for human beings um yeah there, i mean we'll, we'll come back to this but let me tell you like because in the greco-roman world how did how are human beings seen or how, how did, where did human beings come from? Well, we know that in the ancient world, there's a lot of creation stories flying around. And in the, the Greco-Roman world, one of the things you have to realize is that there's lots of gods. There's, there's a lot of violence. <laughs> and there's a lot of slavery. One ancient creation story tells the story of gods battling it out before creation. We find this god, Marduk, killing Tiamat, whose body was then split into two to make up the sky and the land, heaven and earth. 300 gods go up to heaven, 600 rule the earth. And this is the story of creation. Now, what's the role of humanity? Well, they actually don't show up, really. They're a bit of an afterthought. And humans finally show up on the scene. And what, why do they exist? Well, they exist to serve the gods. In fact, this picture of human beings existing to serve the gods shows up over and over again. And humanity was often made from bloodshed and created for slavery of the gods. So some of you know a little bit about Greek mythology. Uh, if you know the origin stories of uh, the Greek gods, I mean, it, it's fun reading, but it's pretty violent, right? There's a lot of chaos, bloodshed, warfare, slavery, jealousy, and no shortage of sex. 
it's it's a page turner that's for sure um I mean, here's, 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 in, in a nutshell, I mean, here's a story. There's, 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 there's Gaia, which is the earth. There's uh, Uranus, which is heaven, the sky. And then there's this other Tartarus, which is the underworld. And we know that uh, the earth and heaven, Gaia and Uranus, they end up having sex. They have children. And their children are a, ra a race called, does anybody know? The Titans, yes. Remember the Titans, yes. Um, and, and the Titans, they were the cute ones. Because uh, Gaia also ends up giving birth to a monsters called Cyclops. Now, Uranus is not a big fan of these kids, and he throws them down to Tartarus, and Gaia is upset with him. You know, how come you threw out her kids? And so she gets revenge by getting one of her sons, a fellow named Kronos, to chop off Uranus's uh, genitals. Um, and then things get rough. Uh, things are rough, but we read that, I mean, this is where the story is, is kind of, kind of quite romantic. Uh, we read that the blood from his chopped off genitals ends up creating Aphrodite. Um, and Aphrodite is the goddess of love, right, and beauty, whose Roman name, Venus, was the source of a really bad song in the mid-80s. Okay. Now the saga continues. Cronus marries his sister uh, Rhea, but then is afraid of his children, so he decides to eat up the children as soon as they are born. The sixth born, however, is saved. His name is Zeus. He grows up nurtured by a goat in a cave, tricks his daddy to vomit up all the other children. And then Zeus forges an alliance with them, and these are the Olympians, and they take on the Titans, and they win. And Zeus ends up cutting up Kronos, and Kronos is like, see, I told you we shouldn't have had kids. Um, um, and pieces of Kronos are thrown into Tartarus, and in the end, <laughs> I almost said tartar sauce, no, Tartarus. Um, <laughs> In the end, Zeus and a god named Poseidon rule the land and sea, and Hades rules the underworld. Okay, now who's missing? <laughs> Thor. That's a whole nother one. <laughs> we need Thor and his hammer, right? Yeah. Who's missing? Human beings. Where do human Oh, okay. We know from the story that human beings have who to thank? fellow named Prometheus. He was a titan, but he had not been thrown into Tartarus with the other titans. He's given the job of making humans, and he does so from dust. The goddess Athena breathes life into humanity, but Prometheus helps out humanity by stealing fire uh, from the sun, and he wasn't supposed to do that. The gods are upset at him, so what do they do? They chain him to a rock where every day his liver is eaten by an eagle. Then it, re then it regrows, and then it's eaten. And then it regrows, and so on and so on. Okay, so there you go. That's the origin story of humanity in the Greco-Roman world. The Romans basically absorbed this story and made it their own. They gave the gods new names. Zeus became Jupiter, Poseidon became Neptune, Aphrodite, Venus. And the Romans did add something to the storyline, though. The god Ares, who was a god of war, was seen negatively by the Greeks. But the Romans, hey, we like the god of war. And um, his Roman name is Mars, and he ended up fa fathering the actual founders of Rome, Romulus and Remus. And he does this, of course, through the violence of raping a mortal named Rhea Silvia. So there we go. The eternal city, Rome, was founded on war, rape, violence. So let me ask you this. Here's a question for you. What time is it? Okay. There's your story. There's your creation story. What a lovely story.
That's your understanding of the gods. So I want to ask you this question. How might society, with this as a backdrop, view the value and the purpose of human beings? Okay, just talk among yourselves. Just All right, so given this as a backstory, how might a society that's, that, that this backstory was the air that they breathed, how might this society view humanity in terms of their value and purpose? <laughs> what value? <laughs> Chaos, yeah, yeah, what else? Keep going. Meant to make, humanity was meant to be used, right? Yeah. Um, yeah, what role would mercy have in it, right? Not much. No, that's a, that's a good observation. Yeah, that's that's good. So the, the the comment was that, you know, if you know we're operating from a, the idea that we're made in God's image, and so there's something embedded within all human beings, including pre-Christian Romans. And so, how would they explain it, and how would it express itself? Good. Yeah, that's a good question. Yeah, good. What else? Yeah, very. I can't hear you, man. Yeah, yeah, that's um, that's um, uh, Hobbes, right? Thomas Hobbes. Yeah, life is nasty, brutish, and short. And it's a war of all against all, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, the only thing I would, I would say differently is that in, in the Greco-Roman world, there was a very clear, like, the idea of, 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 of uh, suspending the idea of right and wrong wouldn't have existed. So everything that would be done would be done with a um, pretty clear idea that this is right and this is wrong. But the stuff that would be done in the name of this is right and this is wrong and this is valuable, this is not valuable, is strange stuff to our eyes right very strange stuff like when i tell you these stories about these creation stories and you hear them how does that make you like what's your gut reaction to them what's that a <laughs> bad soap opera yeah that's right yeah that's right it's like game of thrones on steroids yeah you know okay <laughs> yeah it's, it's pretty intense isn't it well I, I think I know I was reading these stories. I've read these stories before and 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 part of me thinks that any society that is formed on so much violence and like because if you look at the the Greek and the Roman gods, they're just like really powerful bad people <laughs> um, but they got power. And we look at the, the story, we look at, you know, the rape and the violence, the deep inequalities, the lack of compassion, torture, and all that, and we react. Now, here's the thing, though. If somebody said, this reality 
This is the air we breathe, and you know what? This is the way things ought to be. This is right for society to look this way. Part of us, we're like, no, it should not. Like, even if you're not, regardless of whether or not you're a Christian, you hear these stories, and you, somebody says, this is the way it ought to be. You're like, no, no way. So why is that? And, and with, in light of this, it really makes the cross stand out. Because in the Greco-Roman world, somebody being crucified on the cross, how would that be seen? Well, this is a just instrument to deal with the lowest orders of society that are threatening to try to usurp the way society ought to be. So if you're walking into a market and the side of the road, and this is where people would be crucified, they're not crucified somewhere out of sight, they're crucified right smack dab in your sight. You would see them if you're heading to the market. You would see them if you're walking along a road. They were, it was intended to be right in your face. And you see someone dying a slow, literally excruciating death. What are you seeing? Well, you're looking. If you're a Greco-Roman, you're saying, here's a man, in light of the air that we breathe in the Greco-Roman world, has hit the lowest of lows in society. This person had it coming. This person is essentially a non-person. He is scum. He is garbage. And he will be thrown out when all this is done. That's what you'd see. This person's disposable. Now, with that as a backdrop, imagine a group of people saying, hey, this man that we know, his name is Jesus, who died on a cross, is God. What does Paul say? How does this go over with the Greeks? What does Paul say? Foolishness to the Greeks. The Greeks can, and it makes sense if you're reading now, if you're reading 1 Corinthians and Paul says, you know, the cross is foolishness to the Greeks, it's like, well, yeah, it would be. It totally would be. But what a remarkable thing to be said. This person on the cross is none other. This person who's being unpersoned, who's dying the death of a criminal on the cross is God. And in dying, he is rescuing humanity. What a thing to be said. This person on the cross actually is the maker of heaven and earth. He's the one who's behind all creation. They looked upon the cross and they proclaimed, this is God. Now, for this truth claim, in light of the error that the Romans believed, this would have been stark. This would have sound foolishness. This would have been like, well, who are you guys? You're worshiping asses. No wonder we're going to drag one of your bishops into the arena and set this guy on fire because you guys are off your head. Romans can't even speak about something as disgusting as crucifixion. How in the world are you telling me that this is God who died? And yet... If we look at the world over the past 2,000 years, is there anything more influential than this person who died on a Roman cross? Has there been any event that has transformed the world more than this event on the cross? 
Christians have proclaimed that the only way to make sense of life is to look to the cross. They have also proclaimed that the truth and values surrounding the cross should shape our values and how we see the world. And they say, if you want to know what the world is really all about, don't look at the Greek myths. Look to God who stoops down and enters into our world, into the mess of our lives. And here's the thing. This person who was on the cross did not get thrown into a ditch to be eaten by dogs. But three days later, he, 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 he lived again. And, and, and minds and hearts began to change. Hearts were transformed. Communities were affected. Entire cultures were shaped by this staggering truth. And again, we come back to this idea. Theology shapes anthropology. And I think many of the ideas that we value, like equality, we'll look at that next week, compassion, freedom, tolerance, rights, humility, all these things that we say, of course a person should be equal, of course we should be compassionate, of course we should love one another. These things are not self-evident. They don't exist in a vacuum. They are rooted in a revolution that took place. And many of the things that people in our world, even if they don't believe in Jesus, even if they have nothing, want to have nothing to do with Jesus, they are still deeply, deeply shaped by this revolution. And so over the next 10 weeks, we're going to just look how deep this revolution goes. We're going to talk about the revolution of the... Well, actually, I have in your notes what we're going to look at, but I'm going to probably go off script a little bit. We'll look at a few other things too. Revolution of the person, revolution of the home, revolution of the mind, revolution of the heart, revolution of science, revolution of the will, revolution of hope. The revolution of the community. And then we'll talk about how this revolution can save our world again. So I want to leave you with two things. I want to leave you with a warning and a challenge. This class, I hope, is going to be really optimistic in many ways. I think it's quite optimistic. Christianity has changed our world for the better. And even though there are forces pushing against a Christian worldview, some of their assumptions are still Christian, which is, which is quite amazing when, once we drill down. But there are some changes happening in our culture that I think are warnings to us. And we're going to touch on this as we make our way through the class. And here's one of the warnings. And you, if, if you've been in my classes, you know this is something I've mentioned before. I think in a very real and disturbing way, our post-Christian world is starting to look more and more like the pre-Christian world. That is the Greco-Roman world. Remember some of the things about this world. Some of the assumptions in the Greco-Roman world about the value or the lack of value of human life are starting to play out in our culture today. And I think we need to pay attention to that. We live in a world where an ordinary Christian today who criticizes the ethics of the culture can be arrested and persecuted. Uh, we live in a country right now that if I openly speak and counsel somebody about a Christian view of, of humanity, I could go to prison for five years. Now, 
in other countries in the world it's you know i was i just came back from the middle east where i was talking to people in the church and they were saying you know friends that they knew just in the last year were were arrested and killed brutally killed so we're just playing catch up in some ways i think in many ways if we uh speak out we may run into some of the things that that polycarp ran into and I think in some ways our culture, and we're going to talk about this, I think our culture is becoming more and more shame-based. And it's also becoming more and more enamored by forms of entertainment that exploit other people. And think of real violence, whether it be an MMA or UFC, reality police shows, plus millions of YouTube videos showing real violence in real time. Humility, shame, the loss of dignity, these are all staples in our world of entertainment. And so we need to pay attention to this. But here's our challenge. My challenge to you is I want you to see how big God truly is, that he has turned this world upside down in ways that you won't even imagine. And the challenge is to pay attention to the air that you breathe and to recognize just how Christian it really is. <laughs> and I want to challenge you to lean in, even if you don't buy it yet. And then the final challenge is to look to the future with hope and not despair. I think these revolutions that have changed the world, if we lay hold of them, they can change our world again. So I'm hoping this class will be optimistic, but man, I'll tell you, it's going to be fun. It's going to be fun. We're, we're going to look, I mean, I think it's going to be fun. I'm having fun putting it together. So um, it should be fun. And... I want to dialogue with you too. So if you have questions, if you have pushback or whatever, feel free to drop me a line. David at cachurch.ca. I'm happy to take questions. I, I usually get lots of questions throughout the week, so I'm happy to, to, um, to work with you on that. Sound good? Yeah, Keenan? Thanks for participating in this class. If you've been engaging in classes online, but you're not a part of a church community, we would love to have you join us. You can go to cachurch.ca to find out more about getting involved in the life and mission of CA Church.